Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcasts. Today we're delighted to be joined by Professor Joachim Kurz from Heidelberg University. Joachim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You have been leading a project uh, sponsored by the Humanities in the European Research Area Agency, which looks into East Asian uses of the European past or of European pasts. And I wonder if you could sort of try and explain to us how you got interested in uh, a a negotiation between uh, East Asia and Europe rather than simply uh, being interested in how Chinese historians look at Chinese history or Japanese historians look at Japanese history. The way I got into it is um, that I realized you cannot talk about your own national history just in national terms. All of our histories are interconnected and entangled and somehow we have to take account of that. So in, in my case, it was I was interested in philosophy and East Asia very broadly. So I studied um, Chinese history, um, and I, I was taught that there's three traditions for everything in China. So you learn something about Chinese philosophy, you have three traditions, the Confucian, the Buddhist, and the Taoist. Then you go to your next class on Chinese politics, and you're taught again there's three traditions, the Confucian, the Buddhist, and the Taoist. Then you go to learn something about East Asian religions, you're taught there's three traditions, the Confucian, the Buddhist, uh, and the Taoist. And at some point I thought, well, this is odd. What does that mean that there, there's only three traditions? Are these three traditions only politics or are they all at one? Um, and then I thought one of the solutions is that um, these traditions have been translated into a modern language, into a modern taxonomy, you could say, um, and reinterpreted in foreign terms, in Western terms, in globalized terms. And so I became interested in the process of translation of the past. Great. So you've said they were translated. Who was doing the translations and when are we talking about? Well, we're talking about different periods. So you, you could say um, that it started with the Jesuit missions to China in the 17th century. Um, so some people have argued that Chinese philosophy is actually um, an invention of Jesuit missionaries. So Jesuit missionaries, when they reported home um, um, to Rome um, on their activities, said, um, well, in China, um, the dominating force intellectually are the so-called Confucians. But they are not competitions for us because they're not a religion. Confucius is just a philosopher. Um, and so um, it's entirely compatible um, with our teachings. So there's no need for us to attack Confucianism. Um, we can just reconcile Christian teachings with Confucianism. This is when the translation started. Also, the Jesuits, um, in that first period, translated Western philosophy into Chinese terms, into Confucian terms. Um, and they um, adopted various strategies for it. One you could call um, actually conceptual hijacking. So they, they translated um, Western philosophy, Aristotelian philosophy, Christian philosophy into Confucian terms, smuggling in the ideas of God um, and a higher power in order to convert Chinese intellectuals. So that, that was the first period of translation. The second period of translation um, started under very different circumstances in the mid-19th century, when European imperialism or the European expansion affected China. Um, there, too, um, a, a number of intellectuals um, were engaged in exercises of translation, both Westerners um, and Chinese, and also then later Japanese. Um, the question there was, um, how can we understand the Chinese traditions um, in these new global terms of philosophy, religion, science, um, and, and politics? And I mean, certainly the sort of story that um, the layperson might learn about East Asia in the 19th century is that effectively this is a period after engagement with the West when uh, both Japan and China are busy throwing off their historical traditions and appropriating, copying, uh, mimicking traditions from uh, Europe in particular and North America. Uh, that's obviously much too simple a story. Can, can you try and explain why based on what you've just said? Yeah, it, it's, of course it's, it's, a, it's much too simple because... Um, 
um, traditions cannot be just thrown away. Somehow you have to find a measure of continuity with the past in order to retain your identity. So even if you want to change um, social mores or, or the um, institutions of scholarship, somehow you have to find a place for what you had previously in the new system. So one example would be um, the reorganization um, of the curriculum in China. So for, for more than a thousand years, Confucian texts um, were the basis of the civil service examinations, which was um, the only route of social um, uh, mobility. Um, and in 1905, the system was abolished overnight and replaced by a Western-oriented um, disciplinary taxonomy by universities modeled on Japanese case. Um, and one of the questions that arose there is, what do we do with our previous knowledge? Do we insert it in all these different disciplinary slots? So do we say, this is Chinese historiography, this is Chinese politics, this is Chinese economic thought, this is Chinese philosophy? Or do we reserve um, sort of um, a separate field of national studies um, that complements Western knowledge? So do we merge the two? Do we understand our own tradition in these Western terms? Or do we keep the two separate into parallel universes? Uh, can I just pick up on, on something you said in passing there, which is it comes through Japan. Can it comes through Japan. Can you so, say a little bit more about yeah. So the second period of translation that we're talking about is basically a mediated period of translation. Um, many European texts um, got to East Asia, first to China in the 1860s, um, where they were discovered by Japanese scholars who translated them into Jap Japanese, um, where then, um, after the Sino-Japanese War of 1894 and 1895, um, Chinese um, students who were sent to Japan to study modernity there, rediscovered these texts and brought them back to China. So we have a complex um, process of circulation in which a new language of scholarship was basically invented. Can you give an example of what you mean by this new language? Yeah. So just words for philosophy, for science, did not have exact equivalents in traditional Chinese idioms. So they needed to coin new terms. Um, and very often these uh, terms were coined um, in Japan on the basis of the Chinese classics, by the resignification of existing terminologies. Um, and that then sort of led to um, um, the introduction of a new vocabulary in China. Um, if, if you want to have one example, um, um, which I found very striking, is that the language in which philosophy is expressed in Chinese and Japanese today was basically invented in a very strange process by someone from, um, from the Siegerland um, in West Germany, um, the Reverend um, William Lobscheid, who wrote a, a dictionary um, in the 1860s um, that contained a lot of suggestions for words that didn't exist in the Chinese language. So he wrote a dictionary that was not describing what people said, but that was prescribing what people should say. So he invented a language for many terms like philosophy, um, like epistemology, metaphysics, uh, in this book because he thought translators would need such a tool in the future. Now in China, this book had no effect. In Japan, however, when Nishi Amane, who was the father of Japanese philosophy in the 1870s, um, was trying to um, find a language in which to talk about Western philosophy, he found that dictionary. And he took it to be descriptive of what existed already in China and thought these are the terms that we can use. So he translated, with the help of this dictionary, Western philosophy in these terms invented by Wilhelm Lobscheid of Gummersbach near Cologne. Um, that then, and we, we have studies on that, that more than 800 terms of that survived um, in Japanese, was the language that um, Chinese overseas students discovered in Japan when retranslating Western philosophy from Japanese. Um, and so we now have a language of philosophy in China um, more than 800 new words that were invented pretty much um, arbitrarily um, by a not very well um, um, read um, scholar and missionary from Gummersbach. And this is presumably then, this is why you argue there's, there's, there's no way in which one could sort of separate into different zones of scholarship, 
Europe and East right. Asia. Because these are then the terms in, in which the Chinese tradition has been recompartmentalized. So he, um, not, it's not Lobscheid being the inventor, but the people who use these, these new terms um, basically um, reclassified uh, traditional knowledge. So there were efforts um, in the first half of the 20th century to reorganize the national heritage in disciplinary terms. So all of a sudden we had a history of Chinese philosophy, we had a history of Chinese logic, we had a history of Chinese politics that excluded uh, many elements that didn't fit these Western categories um, and highlighted um, um, certain theories that seemed to fit the bill much better. Um, and of course this is a process that implies something that we could call epistemic violence, so a violence to your own traditions. Um, and I think if you want to, to get an an idea of how violent that process was, um, it's a good thought experiment to just reverse the perspective. So if you were to rewrite the history of Western thought in Chinese-derived terms, where, for instance, ritual is very important, um, that would have grave consequences. So if you were to write um, a, a history of European thought on ritual, replacing our histories of philosophy, all of a sudden many thinkers that are now important would vanish. Kant didn't say anything about ritual. He never said whether you should sit to the left or the right of the emperor. Confucius did. So you have to dig up thinkers who, who have arguments like that and rewrite the history of European thought. And so this presumably means that then there are key thinkers, uh, scholars in, in Chinese history, Confucius among them, mm. who are being discarded at this point. They're right. discarded or they're, they're re-signified. So Confucius has become a philosopher. The Jesuits started that process. Then he was invented again as a philosopher in Japan in the 1890s. And Chinese students um, in the early 20th century discovered him there as a philosopher. And that philosopher is made to speak a new language. He's made to answer questions that weren't central to his works. So what we have now, um, the image of Confucius as a philosopher discards 90% of his works. So for those of us who are not in the know, what mm. is the other 90%? <laughs> the other 90% is a social ethics. It's, um, it's, a, it's a vision of how society should be organized hierarchically, how social roles should be defined, uh, what it means to perform well in these social roles, how these performances can um, either sustain or endanger um, the order of the universe. But this is basically erased. This is completely erased. Also, all religious elements are erased in depictions of Confucius as a philosopher. Um, they are inserted and highlighted in depictions of Confucianism as a religion, where the philosophical parts, the allegedly philosophical parts, are then kind of discarded. And if I'm in right in understanding, mm -hmm. there are also then periods in the 20th century where Confucius as a whole is it's discarded, erased, certainly. Discarded. One very famous um, episode is about the, the May 4th movement of 1919, uh, where Chinese students wanted to do away with all of Confucianism. They said, we have to smash the Confucian pawn shop, we have to get rid of all of these traditions because they're just a prison that we have to escape on in order to survive in the modern world. Um, but there's a, a movement against that um, in the uh, interwar period in the 1920s. So after the devastations of the First World War, um, quite a few Chinese thinkers say, well, since the West has only led to destruction on a scale unimaginable before with its modern civilization. Maybe Chinese tradition has some values that can cure some of the ills of the West. And there were alliances built between Chinese thinkers and Western thinkers, um, especially sort of in, in the German milieu of Lebensphilosophie, of the philosophy of life, um, um, that led to publications of Confucius as someone who can save maybe um, the whole world and not just China. And then where does the Cultural Revolution fit into all of this? To the Cultural Revolution, once again, was, was a movement um, doing away 
finally doing away with Confucianism in the 20th century to make China modernity ready. Um, but it failed like all the previous attempts. So Confucianism comes out of the grave um, periodically, and especially in the last 20 years, we have a very strong revival of Confucian motives in, in various levels of Chinese society. So he's back today. He's back today. So we have the sage returning um, in, in various forms. So, so you have Sunday schools, you have um, managers who take um, courses um, in, in Confucian morals, um, allegedly sort of to cure um, their business practices or something like that. You also have philosophers talking very seriously um, about the need to reconfusionize um, China and to maybe also um, have a new version of Confucianism that you could call political Confucianism. This relates to your current work, right? So could you say a little bit more about that particular movement? Yeah, so um, you could say that for most of the 20th century, Chinese thinkers were trying to prove that um, Confucian ideas were compatible with modernity and could even be conducive to modern democratic state. Um, after the um, June 4th massacre on Tiananmen Square, um, um, quite a few thinkers have thought that this way of making Confucianism compatible with the West um, was a wrong way, um, and that the West as a whole should be discarded. It was a model that led China astray. It raised false hope that were not applicable to the Chinese situation. Um, so some thinkers, and one of them is, um, is a man called Jiang Qing, um, now advocate for a more muscular type of Confucianism that is basically anti-modern, and says we should not make Confucianism compatible with modernity because it is not. It is rather an antidote to modernity, and we should return to that vision. But I suppose that poses a problem for those of us who, who study it, is that actors themselves are saying, you know, this is Chinese tradition, we must erase the right. influence of the West, and yet we're interested, you yourself particularly are interested in this kind of space between the West and East Asia. How, how do we negotiate that as as historians? Well, the, the irony is that, that even the defenders of um, allegedly pure forms of Confucianism defend Confucianism in Western-derived terms by now. So the tradition has been completely broken off because the language in which we talk about these, these traditions um, have disappeared. The practices may still be there, so there might be a popular level of continuity, but in the way in which we conceptualize Confucianism, um, we find um, only a modern revived version, a zombie version, you could say, of Confucianism. Can you give an example? What do you mean by that? Um, well, for instance, if this person, Jiang Ting, that I was talking about, if he describes what Confucius envisioned um, uh, for the polity, um, he basically does so in Maoist terms, um, which are allegedly <laughs> incompatible uh, with Confucianism. And so there's a great irony in this. He, he highlights certain aspects of Confucianism which are very much compatible with some version of, of communist ideology right now. Where do you see this going? I mean, this is presumably... It's, it's very hard to say. I mean, we, we kind of, we, we observe the success of some of his writings. We observe that um, someone like him um, would get support from, from businessmen who help him establish Confucian churches. Um, there is an effort now, again, um, which has a precedent in the early 20th century, to establish Confucianism as a state religion, so no longer as a philosophy or a political vision, but as a state religion. Um, and it's very hard to say where, where that can go, because there, there seems to be popular a popular desire, a, a nostalgia for some lost ways that may be worthwhile recovering. So it sounds like we're back to what the Jesuits were trying to avoid at the beginning of the 17th century of Confucianism as a religion, Confucian churches, and so on. Yes, and, and we're back to, to a vision that Confucianism is a competitor of the West. So it's not compatible with the West, but it's, it's the great vision against the West. It's an anti-modernist vision. And in that respect, it's, it's very much international and global. Um, this political confusionism that we face now um, is more similar to visions of Islam as being anti-modern, 
or fundamentalist Christianity of being anti-modern than with what I would say are the more authentic Chinese traditions of Confucianism. Thank you.